Welcome to the Blazer's Edge podcast. I'm Tara, here with my buddy Dan. Hey Dan, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Survived the eclipse. It's kind of like Y2K 2018, I guess. Yeah, I w- so I was wondering, with the eclipse, did it meet your expectations, or did it exceed your expectations, or fall short? Like, what was your j- overall impression? Like, I'd seen one before, so I was I, I kind of knew what to expect, but it was still because it'd been so long, it was pretty cool to see. So then to have it happen locally, I didn't, you know, buy the uh, the approved sunglasses. I just threw on some sunglasses and put on my welding mask on top of that and called it good. And I was able to see it just fine. Well, I had sunglasses because I don't have a welding mask hanging around. So I didn't look <laughs> at it for, for sunglasses. But it's funny because after it was over, I was uh, my husband and I just watched it in our backyard. So we're in Portland. So we were in like the 99 percentile or whatever. My kids actually drove down to central Oregon to watch it and to be in totality. But for me, it like totally surpassed the expectations. Cause I it's had, cool. I had really, really low expect. I was like, Oh, it's going to get kind of dark. And you know, I was there before I saw it before. Uh, but then when it actually happened, I was like, there was like aspects to, to it that I wasn't expecting. There were things that I forgot. It's kind of mystical. Because it's such a unique occurrence. I don't, I don't know if I really want to use that word, but that's like the only thing I can come up with that kind of quantifies how it is for, at least for me. The The weird thing is the, because I, I live kind of out in the countryside in, in Twalton, and Wilsonville area. So I've got a lot of farm animals <laughs> around. So it gets dark and, you know, and it gets light again. The roosters start crowing and there's some homing pigeons that kind of like lost their way and, Cows are laying down in the field next to me. It's just like, this is kind of weird. But the weirdest thing to me is the the temperature drop. Like when you're standing in the sun, like it was like, it was like a 15, 20 degree temperature swing. It was like 75 degrees. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I was like, wow, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm still casting my own shadow. Like I'm in sunlight, but it's not warm. Like the, the, the only thing I can compare it to is like, is my time that I spent in North Dakota. Where it's just cold no matter what. <laughs> well, I thought the, the temperature drop was was weird. I was not expecting that. And it was definitely... And the other thing that was really strange is even though... So in Portland, it didn't, didn't get totally dark, although it did definitely get darker. But despite that, everybody's like lights came on in the neighborhood, like their porch lights yeah. that, that are... So like it wasn't dark, but it was like the light was different enough that it the sensors read that it was dark. So I thought that Something's was really... Not right. I thought that was really strange, but you know what it reminded me of, to bring it back to the Blazers, it reminded me of the 15-16 season, because <laughs> the expectations were, that was, you know, that was the year we reset, right? That was when we got Aminu and Ed Davis and everybody, and Marcus was gone, and it was like, we knew it was going to be basketball, we knew it was going to, like, look familiar, we didn't really know what to expect, and all in all, it turned out to be like, there were some things about it that were cool that were like better than we thought they were going to be. And it just kind of left me with that feeling sort of we had at the end of that year that it was like, wow, that was a pretty good run. That, that was more than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. You know, the the expectations and stuff like that in any kind of instances, when, when it becomes better than you anticipated, I, I think that's a rewarding sense of fulfillment. I guess is, is the way I would word that. Um, it's it's a strange deal, whether it be something like a celestial event or sports, when you're expecting it to be, you know, A, B, and C, but 
it becomes so much more than that, even if the totality of it isn't that great. Like the 15-16 season was was a, a 500 season. I mean, I mean, slightly above 500. It wasn't like it was this spectacular idea of, oh, my God, this is the greatest thing ever. But it was the expectations. The bar was so low that when it became something so much more than that, it was that much more enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really, and, and there were just, there were elements that we, that <laughs> nobody could like, you know, the, the, the team, obviously when they went out and they picked these new players, they had some expectation of what they were going to do. But as a fan, I had, I had really low expectations and I usually do that to myself because I would rather like have low expectations and be pleasantly surprised and go in with really high expectations and be vastly disappointed. I just don't like disappointment. So uh, I'm not I'm not hardcore when it comes into oh, like having hey, a high hey, bar. There's only there's only one pessimist allowed here. Remember, I'm 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 the the true pessimist. As, as I'm not a pessimist. I just go I go in with lower. Standards. <laughs> I just set the bar really low. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, the, the ironic thing is I don't, I don't want to get I don't want to get too off track here. But I actually had somebody on Twitter the other day who who's never or not familiar with, apparently with anything I've ever done who called me a homer. <laughs> Well, because, Dan, every (laughs) once in a while, Fan Dan slips through, and you can tell that even though you, you know, look at it analytically and you like to, you know, try to take a step back and look at it from all points of view and really try to figure out, like, what are the numbers saying? What does the analysis tell me? You can tell when you really get going that you really want the numbers to tell you good things about the team. You really want things to go well. So Fan Dan comes through every once in a while. I want things I want things to go well, but I don't think I've ever been been a homer in a sense, with the exception of maybe Myers. Myers, I will admit, I have a, an absolute blind spot for. He's a guy that I've unabashedly been a supporter of and wanted him to do well. I don't know why. It's just I like the guy. But it, it was just a really it was really a weird circumstance that it's a, actually I think it's the first time anybody has ever called me a homer. It's just a really weird feeling considering like where I've tried to kind of put myself and how I try to look at things. So again, it's it's that kind of perspective idea of where things currently sit, but you're you're right. No, it was like looking at expectations for players and and the projections. And, you know, you put a piece out on Blazers edge today on on Monday about, you know, who really outformed expectations. Why don't you kind of take the wheel and, and tell us like why you went, with this and and what you kind of, what was the idea that kind of sparked it? Yeah, sure. So we've been doing several articles where we just kind of pose questions for fans to, to get people discussing and get them talking about. And uh, Dave and I, we're going to do, we were going to talk about which team we thought, which Blazers team we thought um, most surpassed expectations. And then we were like, well, the championship team, boom, done. (laughs) And obviously I'm sure there could be many arguments for other teams, but then we started thinking like, let's talk about what player who played for the trailblazers who most succeeded uh, your exceeded expectations. And we could look at it in any way that we wanted to. So when I tackled this, I like, I pretty much took to guys that had been, when I was looking at it, look, pretty much looked at guys who'd been drafted by the Trailblazers, but didn't necessarily keep it just to be players who had drafted, but I had to start somewhere. And so I was looking for guys who uh, were drafted like in the second round, late in the first, who maybe at the time of being drafted didn't have as high expectations for them. And I landed on Jerome Kersey. 
And after I started thinking about it and remembering about him and just how much he meant to this team, what his longevity in the league was just incredible. And he was part of that 1984 draft class that, you know, <laughs> had Michael Jordan, Hakeem Olajuwon, Charles Barkley, John Stockton. The greatest draft class ever. Yeah. It was incredible. And so Jerome Kersey came in that draft class. I think he was number 46. He was the 22nd pick in the second round and he came from a little school that had just even had only gotten athletics four years before he'd been there so I mean as far as far as um as far for me it was an easy and enjoyable piece to write because then I got to just go and read about Jerome Kersey and I knew a lot about him of course when he died a couple years ago it's a great story from Harry Glickman, which supported my argument about him uh, surpassing expectations. He was, Harry Glickman was talking about when they drafted him. At the time, they had 30 seconds to make their choice, and they, there were several guys on the board, and he was just like, someone's got to tell me who I'm going to, like, we're going to lose this pick if I don't say somebody. He's like, I'm just taking Kersey. Somebody was like, just take Kersey, take him. So they took him which I thought was, you know, kind of funny how we almost missed him. But then he added to that story about a time where they were trying to negotiate the contract with him to tr- and, and they had been planning to send him over to Europe for a year. And Kersey was like, no, I'm going to come to training camp and I'm going to make this team. And I just thought that is so like Jerome and it's so indicative of somebody who, you know, people had counted out or who weren't thinking as highly of him as he was thinking of himself. And he managed to change people's mind. And I just thought that was awesome. How about you? Who is, you know, in reading this, I wanted to kind of come from the same point of view that you did initially. And that really that entire era of Blazers from, from uh, Kersey to Porter to, I mean, Drexler, I mean, Drexler was, was a, a 14th overall pick. Uh, Terry Porter came from Stevens point. I, I mean, <laughs> these, these schools that, that, so many guys on that that the era of Blazers came from these schools. That, I mean, they were also rans or non-existent, you know, a few years prior. Cliff Robinson. I mean, all these guys. But I, the more I thought about it, I'm like, who are the guys that really exceeded expectations? Those guys exceeded expectations because the bar was set so low. Something we were talking about earlier. But to me, the the, the guys that exceeded expectations more than anybody for me were Brandon Roy and Damian Lillard. Okay. Brandon Roy, if not for his injuries, maybe maybe this is the homer in me talking. I have no qualms about saying that if Brandon Roy had a healthy career, would be a first ballot Hall of Famer. The way he played from day one was staggering. He he played like a eight year vet in his first season. You just don't see that kind of savviness even from from a four-year guy you just don't see that very often that that's that's a rare rare thing and the same thing held true with Damian Lillard he came in and yeah Dame had Wes and Nick and LaMarcus and Robin he had these veteran guys who were all talented around him but the things he was able to do I mean I, I think I threaded like a 12 tweet thread on what Damian Lillard has accomplished in his first five years the list of players that have dropped 8,000 points and 2,000 assists in their first five years. Every one of those guys, say, I think, but two are in the Hall of Fame or going to be first ballot Hall of Famers. For a guy from Weber State who was a two or three-star prospect out of Oakland, yeah, he was a lottery pick, and yeah, Portland was high on him, but how many teams are really high on Damian Lillard? 
there were, there were questions about how his game would translate to the NBA. They knew certainly that he could run the pick and roll, but beyond that, what could he really bring to an NBA level team coming from Weber State? And that to me, that that's a heck of a transition going from Big Sky to the NBA. And to take and elevate to not just to be a successful player, but be an all-star, be a rookie of the year, be an all-NBA player. That's, I mean, you're hoping to get that with a top three pick, top five pick. When you, the, the, Certainly there are guys beyond that that have been, you know, Hall of Famers. But th- that's usually the area that you see those guys. Right. And I think both of those guys are were, were remarkable at exceeding the expectations because of the speed with which they did it. They hit the ground running. I yeah, mean, exactly. I mean, I chose to look at it one way, but I think the way that you look at it is, is you know, just just as valuable because they were both handed the ball, you know, when the day they stepped. And both those guys were literally, here's the franchise. I mean, how, how many guys can you can you say that about in the NBA? on a regular basis. Not all number one picks are created the same. LeBron James was a guy that was handed a franchise. Um, Tim Duncan wasn't even handed a franchise. It was still David Robinson. I mean, you look at these generational players. Uh, Kevin Durant was a good to great player his rookie year, but nobody thought he was going to be what he's turned into. They thought he was going to be a very good to great player not a in a Hall of Famer. Steph Curry was not thought to be what he is right now. Brandon Roy and, and Damian Lillard were handed the franchise from day one. Mm-hmm. Brandon, and, we need yeah. you to bring us out of this depth. Dame, you're the rookie, but we Neil O'Shea has anointed you. And that may have been part of the reason why LaMarcus left. But th- they, these, these guys were given everything and, and the responsibility that comes along with that, and they never faltered. To me, that's the, that's the, that's that's what I look for as far as like exceeding expectations, because no other player, the exception of the players that are anointed in that way, has expectations set higher. Sure, you know, and I think one of the ways that guys uh, that players exceed expectations, there's like you were saying guys who just are immediately hit the ground running and ready to go. And then there's the players who over the course of their career continue to add more and more things to their game. When just when you think there's nothing left that they can add to their game, they add one more tool to their toolbox. We talked a little bit about this with Wesley Matthews last week and Wesley Matthews got some shout outs on the, uh, on the article too, about uh, players who exceeded expectations because Every year, they add another element to their game. So let's transition to talking about our current team um, and expectations. It's time for us to start setting some expectations. I think this will take place over a number of weeks. But I've um, uh, noticed that with you know a not a lot of big moves in this off season, or virtually no big moves in this off season, except for losing one key element there's going to have to be some resetting, I think, of expectations. And we're going to have to be looking at internal development and internal growth for uh, for real improvement in this team. So I wanted to talk about what are some of the things that the players on this team could bring in after a summer of, you know, working on the fundamental skills and trying new things. What are some things that some of the players could add to their uh, toolboxes this year that you think would make a real difference in helping this franchise improve? 
if you're looking at the top of the roster between Dame, CJ, and Nurkic, <clears throat> let's let's start with Dame. Over the course of the Dame, uh, as we talked about plenty, is one of the top pick and roll players in the league, and in isolation in the spot up. Offensively, he's phenomenal. His one shortcoming was his ability to finish in the paint. And over the last few years, he's kind of elevated that. So his offensive game is really well-rounded now. Could he improve in the paint? Yes. And I think that's an area that he'll continue to get better in, where he'll his ability to navigate around screens and around bigger players. And you can see working with CJ has kind of rubbed off on him where he's added a little bit more of that pull-up and floater game in and around the paint where it's a little bit less risky um, for for a point guard to go into the paint and, and get kind of banged up and knocked off balance and um, things of that nature. But he's still able to to, to generate free throws. So I, I think he can, he can get a little bit better in that aspect. But the biggest thing, I think, for him is being a little tidier with his shot selection. So... Do you mean um, him uh, getting more open with his shots, like doing something in order to get more open or just uh, passing up the harder shot for giving somebody else an easier shot? Exactly. Not forcing the the really difficult shot because it's even though it's a shot, you know, he can take and make. Yeah, because he takes a lot of really hard shots and he makes them. He does, but he's, he's he's a shot taker and a shot maker. There's very few guys in the league that can hit shots like, like he can't. I mean, you're talking about guys like Steph Curry, um, James Harden, uh, Jamal Crawford. These guys are, are Kevin Durant. These guys are hard shot takers and hard shot makers. Um, you, those are the ones you just scream, no, 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 yes. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're if, like, Don't, what are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, excellent. But those are... Th- those are the shots that can that can make runs, but they can also make runs for the opponent when you take too many of them. Now, it's going to be harder for him, I believe, to do this without the aid of somebody like Alan Crabb. So that's why I think he needs to be a little bit tidier with that shot selection because you're, you don't have an additional 12, 13 points that are coming off the bench from a guy who's a reliable shooter. And people can, can be detractors of Crabb and not taking shots all they want. But it's still still incumbent upon Lillard to continue to progress the system, to, to, to get better. And I think for, for him, that's the area I think he, he needs to be the best in. So tidier in shot selection, and by that by extension, that kind of means knowing when to uh, take the difficult shot or when to pass it off. He, he, he's the unquestioned shot taker on this team. He's going to take difficult shots. But knowing when to take that shot and when not to, I think he has to be a little bit more selective going into the season because their offensive output is going to be a little bit, I don't want to say staggered, but it's it's going to be more reliant, I believe, particularly on Damon CJ, because, I mean, the one guy that they had to come off the bench last year whose sole purpose was shoot is gone. Right. Well, one of the the uh, Im- improvements that I think that I I was hoping to that I'm hoping uh, to see because I think it will help the team improve a lot is Aminu and Harkless got to be doing nothing but shooting threes this summer because they are going to be wide open at least at the beginning <laughs> they're going to be wide open and that will you know give Dame the outlet. I mean, do you think that they're going to be getting more threes? Do you think they're going to be making up for the Allen Crab threes? They're going to they're going to be getting more attempts. There's no doubt in my mind. 
they just got to start putting they just got to start putting them in at a regular basis. Maurice Harkless and, and Alfred Camino have got to hit corner threes. So why corner as opposed to just because that's where they'll be, mo- be most open? That's where they're going to leave them. Okay. Because they're going to help on Dame and CJ. They are going to take the 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 Golden State Warriors Portland playoff matchup last year. There were times when I saw the switch coming and they left Al Farouk Aminu to cover Alan Crabb. They, they, they completely unabashed left him in the corner. Those guys are going to be wide open. The shot that you don't want to give up, the two shots in the NBA that you don't want to give up are layups and corner threes. However, when you've got somebody who's inconsistent in the corner versus letting somebody like CJ McCollum get to the mid-range, this is where analytics is, is a little bit weird. Because even though the mid-range shot is the most inefficient, when you've got somebody like Kevin Durant or CJ McCollum getting to the mid-range where they can kind of break those trends, that's an efficient shot for them. They're, they're shooting 50% from the mid-range. So if you're going to if you're gonna opt to contest a mid-range two from CJ McCollum to leave an open Al Farouk Aminu in the corner who's shooting 30% from the corner, your rate of return is going to be better on covering CJ, even though the two is worth less than the three. So those two guys have got to hit that shot more than any other shot. Their opportunities are going to come in corner threes and transition. And that, that's where those guys are going to make points. And I, I know that scares some people to hear Alfa Camino and in tra- transition. I don't mind Alfa Camino catching the ball and dunking. Maurice Harkless, he, he can run the length of the floor with the ball. I'm okay with that. That's, that's totally fine. On the other side of the roster, though, you've got CJ. And I think we saw what CJ can do to really up his game. Last year, and we're, we're seeing more articles saying basically what I was talking about towards the end of last season was CJ McCollum has become one of the best all-around and efficient scorers in the NBA. We've seen it from Bleacher Report, Real GM, a couple other sites have all, have all written things about how CJ's game has evolved to that point. So offensively, between Dame and CJ, you pretty much got it covered. But defensively, if CJ can play defense like he played on Clay Thompson in that series, at 75% of that level for 82 games, that can cover up for a lot of the shortcomings that they may have defensively and even offensively and lacking with Alan Crabb's production. CJ's going to be tired next year, though. CJ's already tired. Here's the crazy thing about CJ McCollum. In the, I believe in the past three years, two of the past three years, he's led the league in distance covered. Do you think he can get more efficient in terms of being able to preserve his energy? Because without Alan Crabb there, I mean, those are those are shooting guard minutes that I think we talked about this last time that CJ's probably going to be taking up. And if he's going to be playing more defense, because he's shown, like you said, that he's been able to step up and play more defense. Could he become more efficient in a way where he's, you know, reserving his energy better? You're talking like economy of motion here. Yeah. Less less running around to create space and more of the, of the spot variety. That, that's, a, that's a really good question. If, if, if Napier's playing the point guard, if he's able to distribute and create, then yes, that allows somebody like CJ to, to preserve some energy offensively if he can spot up. But that that's also becomes more reliant on on the other guys. Uh, somebody like like Nurkic, if, if if they're running a lineup, let's say Dame comes out early and Napier's the, the first guard replacement now, and CJ stays at the two, even if he's handling the ball as as much as he was last year, Napier can still help facilitate, but Nurkic is still out there to alleviate some of that pressure. So you can't just 
run off and chase CJ McCollum off the line and, and double team him because you've got Nurkic inside. And this is kind of where the, the next step I was going with. It's uh, talking about the, the top of the lineup in that Nurkic. If Nurkic, and, and Stotts has kind of hinted at this, saying that Nurkic wasn't going to shoot threes last year. It was something he was going to have to work on this year and then bring into his game this year. Now, I don't need Nurkic to become, you know, Kevin Durant from three. But if he becomes Mark Gasol, where he's hitting the ones, you know, at a regular clip that he's taking, awesome. And we've already seen via Instagram, Nurk has been putting in work. Well, everybody over Instagram can put in work. No, that no, Nurk has gone. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about what he's done in the videos. I'm talking about his body. Nurk has clearly dropped 30 ish, maybe more pounds, unless he's got somebody photoshopping every one of those images. Because when he came, if you look at the pictures of when he was playing in Portland towards the end of the season, and now. He, he he trimmed all all that that baby fat off the arms and off, and off the off the chin and the cheeks. He he's lean, he's very lean, and that's kind of the same transformation that that Mark Gasol went to. Gasol trimmed up a ton, and you kind of saw his game change there. So, do you think that's gonna has something to do with what he might have added as far as skill sets in the off season? I hope so. His ability to be able to step away and knock down a shot can change how defenses have to cover him. It, it changes the whole dynamic of the pick and roll and the pick and pop. If he if he pops and you don't cover and he's able to hit that 15-footer, we saw what, what, what happened when Mason Plumley said he worked on his jumper, right, last year? Saw how well that didn't work out. He, the first couple of games, he, he took some shots there, and it was really bad. Fa- or rewind that a couple years to... Robin Lopez. Robin Lopez all of a sudden had enough of a jumper to where if you left him uncovered at that elbow, he could hit it. And, and then, then that's that's not a huge weapon, but it's a tendency breaker. Right, and it wasn't like they were designing plays for that, but if, if he was caught out there, he could do it. Exactly. And, th- and those little things are, are, I mean, we've talked about this a bunch of times. The, the average margin in the NBA, uh, uh, margin of victory or margin of defeat, however you want to look at it, is five points. So you've got to find a way to come up with those little wrinkles that get you those points every single night. And tendency breakers are a big part of that because you're going to get your points on what you do best. And if you can get points on areas that aren't your best, then you really make it harder on a defense. So for Nurkic, what he was able to do last year, diving to the rim and getting rebounds and putbacks, that's phenomenal. If he can step back and hit a jumper off a pick and pop, that's huge. And let's say he can, he can actually play the minutes on top of that. Now you're talking about something that changes the entire dynamic of the team. Well, while we're talking about centers, I've been trying to figure out who's going to be the first center off the bench. Do you think it will be Ed Davis? <sighs> or do you th- because, you know, keeping with our theme of what people might add. So Ed Davis was injured most of last year. He only played for like 46 games. And that whole time we find out that he was nursing an injury anyway. It was to his left shoulder. He's left-handed. I've been watching Ed Davis uh, highlights for the last week, which are super fun, by the way. <laughs> but one of the things that I loved about Ed Davis two seasons ago was he went up with two hands all the time. Uh, with those rebounds uh, or running through the lane, coming through the lane with a dunk. He always had both arms up 
and last year I noticed that he, I, you know, the, the, so many of the clips that I watched of him last year were just with one hand. And I think it partly was because he was hampered with his, uh, with his shoulder. So what I'd like to see him come back to do is go back to that fine form, which like when he goes up Being with strong. two hands, he had so much more control and he like, he could just maneuver his way into these little spaces that are like, how did he even get up in there? And he was also, he also came back more muscular last year. And I don't know if that made it harder for him to get up or if it was just injury to the shoulder or whatever, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to and hoping we can get a return of Ed Davis. What do you think the possibilities of that are? I was as high on Ed Davis two years ago as I think anybody could be. In, in ranking the Blazers as far as untradeable, I went Dame C.J. Ed Davis. That was how valuable I felt his production was to the team on a night-in, night-out basis. And to see him kind of fall off with the injuries last year, it was really kind of painful to watch. But I think somebody like Caleb Swanigan is going to feature more heavily uh, especially throughout the season, because Ed's in the last year of his contract. I, I think Ed's a candidate to get, to get moved by the trade deadline uh, to a team that's looking to push for the, for the playoffs. Don't you think that's going to have him playing, you know, even harder? Showcasing he's taking a look minutes, around yeah. and he's seeing all these centers who like aren't getting any money and he's got to like prove that he's going to be worth it. That, that, that contract years are always kind of kind of the odd part of, of every player's cycle. Um, I think uh, whether anybody wants to admit it subconsciously, it's there because it, it's it's your career. It's your livelihood. So you, you always want to perform better. So you're playing for your next deal. Right. The the week before your performance review, you like work really hard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, and there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, I, I have no problem with somebody seeking, you know, financial merit as motivation. I think that's a great motivator for, for somebody in any position, and it's no different in the NBA. Um, however, I think Portland, if they're looking for the short and long term, I, I think it benefits them more to get Swanigan out there. And I think Swanigan will be more at the power forward anyways, which is where I think Ed will feature. Um, but I think there's some flexibility to be in there. Um, I think we'll see a lot of Swanigan and, and Myers Leonard together um, on the floor, and I think you'll see more – Ed Davis with um, playing in a small ball lineup with Alfred Camino at the stretch four. So, because the, the only lineups to me that make sense for Ed Davis at the center are with either Aminu or Swanigan at the four. Somebody who can go out on the perimeter and cover. Davis can do it in stretches, but I think if you're asking him to play the full the four against stretch fours consistently, it, it's a little bit more of a difficult proposition. So you think Ed Davis, if we're doing smaller ball, who is our center off the bench if we're not doing small? Is it Myers? Like, who's our backup big guy? I think they're going to give Myers a chance. I, I know that that's going to irritate some people, but I think they're going to give him some, some early chances to see what happens. I, I don't think it's going to be Collins. I, I think Collins is going to be relegated to the bench for, for quite some time. That's not a shot at him. I just don't think physically he's ready to play in the NBA yet. Yeah, no, if you see him and lay eyes on him, he's just simply not big. He's like, you know, when Brandon Ingram would stand out last year and you'd be like, oh, God, don't break him. Yeah. Oh, please don't break he's, him. He's, he's a center version of that. He's just physically he's not there. And that's fine. He's a 19-year-old kid. I mean, that's just it, it, that's that's just the way it goes. Um, so, yeah, I think that Portland has some options there. 
because they have some some big bodies there. I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe Collins does you know get his his you know adult kind of growth spurt and his body fills out you know over the next six to eight months and maybe we see him kind of come to the fore. But I think you'll see some mix and match lineups. And Stotts has been kind of good about this in the sense that I know a lot of people like to see a set rotation. Stotts is kind of mixed and matched uh, uh, depending on who he's playing. Um, for the players, that's kind of weird. And I think you, you've kind of heard that echoed from some of the big men in the past that, you know, I just got to be ready because I never know when it's going to be my night. Cause it, it could be the Myers one night it could be at another, you know, if they're, if they want to pull the big man out of the paint, it's Myers. If, if they want somebody who's going to bang down low a little bit more then it's going to be, you know, somebody like Ed, but I think Ed Davis is, or excuse me, not Ed, uh, Caleb Swallingen is going to be the one who's going to kind of come to the fore from these big men and be the one that gets the, the bulk of the minutes there when it comes to the most utility, because he rebounds just like Ed. He may not be as physically active as Ed in, in that kind of bounciness and springiness and athleticism, but he rebounds like him and he gives you more offensively while being able to cover around the perimeter. Uh, and he gives you the big body kind of like Ed who has no inhibitions when it comes to banging, you know, banging shoulders with somebody else. Yeah, and Ed doesn't do so much of, you know, back to the basket, um, you know, pounding in uh, as I think Swanigan might try this year. Mm -hmm. But I have to say, I the the thought of Swanigan and Myers together, I'm not convinced that 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 they're a good pairing. Um, I see. I think I see what you mean because Myers, you know, would it has a longer shot, and so he could be out there farther. But I, I don't know. I just see the two of them running into each other a lot, and it's, it's and not, it's not getting hard frustrated. to imagine that. It's, it, but I think that's that's why you're going to see some mixing and matching, is because there's outside of Nurkic, there's not a clear cut. I mean, who's going to play alongside Nurkic? in the, the, the times that matter. Right. I mean, I can see, I can see Ed Davis playing really well alongside Nurkic. And as long as we've seen, we've seen Vonley playing alongside Nurkic, but I'm worried about what happens if Nurkic isn't in, cause he can't play 48 minutes. Yeah. And I think that's why we're going to see a lot of mixing and matching. We could see some Vonley at center. I mean, again, Vonley's in, in the last year was deal here too. So, you know, there, there's a lot of things that can happen. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit. Let's keep talking about things that uh, guys might add to their game. And we know that Myers Leonard this summer is down in uh, California working out, uh, working hard with the trainer down there. He's uh, reported to be playing a lot of basketball. He's been largely staying off of social media. You know, the obvious thing I think that I think could help the team out a lot is if he sped up his shot. Um, and was able to get a much quicker release. But what are some other, like, you know, um, moves or things that he could develop that you that you see in the potential in him um, that could complement the team and help him go a step further? For Myers, and, you know, this goes with the whole the Instagram hype and I'm putting in work in the offseason, yada, 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 that we always hear from players across the board. Mm -hmm. But the trainer that, that Myers is working with is Drew Hanlon. Uh, who I think is is the kind of like modern day Tim Grover. I mean, the guy that, that revolutionized Michael Jordan's game. Hanlon has done some amazing work with players. Um, 
I got to see Myers uh, at Summer League in his kind of rework shot when he was out on the floor, just kind of warming up with the guys. Um, his shot is different. Um, and, and Hanlon said that, you know, in a Myers report that Hanlon had talked to him that that was when they sat down and discussed what he wanted to work on, uh, Hanlon had watched every single one of his jumpers. And Hanlon said that he was shoot that Myers was shooting like something like 60 something percent when he had his feet set a certain way and he, and he was confident in his shot and stepped into his shot. And that's something I've always said. I think it's something that's everybody that everybody's always said when Myers is confident in his shot, he's a heck of a shooter. I mean, the, the, I don't think anybody will question that. And I think that part of that is, is a breakdown in mechanics that, that comes with a lack of confidence. And I think Hanlon is a guy that, that is, that is instilled in him both the mechanical aspect of it and the confidence aspect of it. He, they, they tweaked his jumper a little bit, um, to, to speed it up and make it more consistent and make it more reliable. Um, they're not like real visible changes, but enough so that you noticed it if you, if you paid attention to it. Um, so I think those kind of things in, in the work that Myers is putting in right now, everybody talks about how if I was an NBA player, I would be putting in so much work. Yeah, yeah. All these guys put in work every single mm-hmm. summer. It's the type of work that you put in. And it, you can scrimmage all you want. You can lift as many weights as you want. You can watch as much film as you want. But if you don't have a dedicated regimen targeting things that you absolutely positively want to work on, you're really not going to elevate beyond when you're already at the elite level. You have to do elite level training in order to elevate into the next level. And these little tiny tweaks that end up amounting to huge gains in, in a professional league. So it's for me, it's nice to see that Myers went to that level. And everybody's like, I know that the, a lot of people want to say, oh, why wasn't he doing that beforehand? There's a lot of guys in the league that aren't doing that. They just don't know that they don't understand. And Myers said that he's like, I didn't understand the level that I needed to take it to. And that was came from a guy, ironically, Wesley Matthews, who, you know, is kind of the, the, the poster child for being that guy. But let's think about, um, other some of the other players and what they might add so uh we've got we haven't really i talked about aminu just you know getting better on threes because and we talked about him taking uh corner threes anything else that you can think of i'm hoping that he did a lot of those chair dribbling exercises with him it's just better decision making that's that's really the the thing is i don't think you can expect a ton from a guy like a, a Meyer or like a Myers or a Mino or a Harkless. They kind of are who they are. You, you want them to improve, certainly. But I think at the same time, we need to appreciate who they are and what they do bring to the game. Not every player is going to be a Wesley Matthews who legitimately every year brought something new. But if you can prove just a little bit, it makes you that much more valuable. And that's that's what a, a kind of the definition of a pro's pro is. When you get older and you lose some athleticism, you use your basketball IQ to get to spots that you need to get to. You anticipate better. You read things better. And I'm hoping that's kind of the case with, with both Aminu and Harkless. Um, Aminu is a great defender. Uh basically one through four and even some fives. He is our defender. <laughs> yeah. So appreciating that and understanding that that's what he brings to the team is great. The other things that come along with it, you want those things, but I, I think for people to expect him to be um, a shooter when he wasn't a shooter, you know, it really his entire career is, is kind of a stretch. So if he can return to the form that he had two years ago and maintain that and hit the, the timely shots, those corner threes, that to me is a, is a success. 
So if, if he can develop in that aspect for it, I, I'm I'm all about it. Okay, then let's talk about Evan Turner. <sighs> man. I guess what I've what I've been trying to figure out, um, I've I've heard you know people talking about how valuable he was in Boston, what how he fit in well there, and what about his fit in Boston was so effective that maybe isn't working here or could be better adapted for the Trailblazers. Well, when he was playing in Boston, he was working as more of a primary facilitator. And the system had a lot more cutting for their bigs. Um, that's not really what Portland does with their bigs, with the exception of Nurkic. Um, so getting Turner in a position to facilitate more for those guys, if, if you've got, again, somebody like Swanigan who who may look to get in there, or or Ed Davis in his return, because he's, he's a guy who can catch the ball in, in traffic and dunk, um, that can be big. It's it's all about putting him in a position to to succeed, without being detrimental and pulling away from what the other guys do best. That was always my my biggest, I don't know, pet peeve of the Turner acquisition is that Portland had guys that needed the ball to create. You needed somebody else who didn't need the ball to create, who could still create off the bounce. And Evan Turner, while he can create off the bounce, he still needs the ball a lot more than a tertiary guy normally does. So for me, when, when I look at that, it's, it's kind of, I don't know. It, it's a weird situation. I, I kind of, I hope he figures it out because I really like Evan Turner, but I, I still think it's more of a square peg round hole kind of an idea. If you're, if you're trying to make things that much better for him, I think it detracts from the team as a whole. If you try to force that too much. So the instead of trying to figure out what he is best at, him figuring out what complements the existing team best is a more effective use of him. That's a perfect and way to put it. Right now, him holding the ball is not it. <laughs> exactly. Not I mean particularly or maybe now. Maybe it is. Maybe he needs to be a straight up backup uh, point guard. Maybe he's instead of Shabazz, maybe Turner could be playing more just straight. I mean, the problem with that, here's the, here's the problem with that now is, is that when he's out there on the floor, how many three point shooters is he going to have on the floor with him? Because primarily he was out there a lot with Alan Crabb. Right. And those two together, strangely enough, didn't play that well off of each other, particularly last year in the beginning. But of if the he's season. out there with either Dame and CJ and helping create three shots for them, I guess, you know that could be, and that may that may, that maybe be a wrinkle that we see. Maybe we see three ball handlers out there, at, you know, for stretches of a time. And then we'll have four, and then we'll have five, and we'll just really change things. Well, yeah, no, I mean that's what the Warriors do. They have th they have three, at least three, if not four, on the floor. Sometimes five, and that that puts an incredible strain and stress on your defense. What is what is Portland going to do at what does Portland need to do as a team in your opinion to um to play better team defense? We've talked a lot about the players individually. They need to be better individually. Really? Okay. So it's not the lack of communication? I, I mean, don't, is I it... don't think so. Uh, I, I think the communication aspect of that a lot of that was solved 
um, when Nurkic came in. Myers, for all of his faults, is, was easily the most vocal defensively on the team. I know I've heard the other players talk about how Myers is, is always vocal on the defensive end. It's just something that's that that's kind of been there. I, I think as a as a big man, when when you're when you're le, le, a legit seven footer. I think it just kind of comes with the territory. It's like being a goalie in soccer. Right. You can see everything. Your head's above exactly. everybody. You see everything better. So you, it, 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 you're just kind of commanding an area. So I, I think that's kind of a, a natural thing when you're in that position and, and you've got that size and you're seeing everything that's kind of going on on the floor. Um, I, I think that defensively that guys just need to be better individually. Huh, that's really interesting. That's not ex- what I was expecting. You no, know, people want to criticize the scheme. The scheme's only as good as the defenders you have. You you can have the best scheme in the world. You could be Tom Thibodeau out here and, you know, kind of developing the ice defense. Yeah, that doesn't work if you don't have, you know, Tony Allen and Rajon Rondo on the perimeter in the young Celtics days with Kevin Garnett anchoring the middle. And Paul Pierce, for a long stretch of the time, and Ray Allen were decent to good defenders. You look at the other guys that the role players they had on that team, they all played defense. All of them. You had James Posey. You had Kendrick Perkins. I mean, you look at all these guys, you can have, like I said, you can have all the scheming that you want, but it doesn't matter if you don't have the individual defenders behind it. You can have a subpar defender. You can even have two subpar defenders if you've got the, the, the requisite pieces to cover it up um, around them. With Nurkic in the middle, you alleviate a lot of the pressure that the guards just kind of give up. So let's recap. We're reaching the end of our time here. So let's recap some of the things that we've talked about so that we can uh, remember to look for them in the offseason and find out if the players themselves thought that they could improve in ways that we're suggesting we think might be impactful. Um, We talked about Damian um, and his shot selection. Just tidying up that shot selection. Yep. DJ, what do we talk about with him? Um, Defense. If he can, if he can be that defender throughout the season that we saw in the playoffs. Okay. Aminu and Harkless. For me, I'm. We're talking about corner threes. Mm-hmm. And uh, was there any movement with them? We're talking about movement with them. We were just. We just want them to make those corner threes and keep doing what they're doing on defense. Yeah, really. I mean, that, that's, that's what you're expecting from your role players. Here, here's your here's your siloed abilities. Make those happen and and be consistent in one other area. Be a threat. Myers, confidence in his shot, which we're excited to find out. Be there on the floor. <laughs> you know that, that yeah. That's, get the minutes. Get yeah. the minutes to get out there and prove yourself. Um, Ed Davis. See, what would you consider him another one of these uh, players that has like limited dimensions, but he can really improve in that. In, in those limited dimensions. Yeah, he's going to give you X, Y, and Z. I don't think we're going to see an evolution in Ed Davis's game. The only thing I think that you'll see from him is, you know, hopefully is is sustained health. Yeah. And two arms going up there. Ed's going to give you what he's going to give you. And that, I think that's something that is often overlooked at players at his level um, is that you always want more instead of appreciating what it is that they, that they do give you. Good. That's a That's a good point. I would just, yeah, I just want to go back to uh, two years ago, Ed Davis, who just would come crashing in up and over everybody. He'd squeeze himself into these tight little impossible positions to get the rebound and get the put back. It'll be nice to have his offensive rebounds back. Exactly. I can't count how many times his offensive rebounds led to a wide open three. 
the only player I can remember in recent memory who who was better at that at turning those into that uh, remarkably is Joel Freeland. It seemed like every time Joel Freeland got an offensive rebound, it was kicked out to a wide open three point shooter, and it was three points. And it was like every time he got an offensive rebound, I was like, oh, here, here's three points. Oh, I'll have to watch for that. I I'm always welcome a, a opportunity to go and watch Ed Davis highlights. I'll have to go watch all his assists on stats.nba.com. <laughs> well, anybody else you want to make any mention of, or should we go ahead and wrap it up here? And uh, next week we'll have another topic about setting the expectations for next season. No, I think this is a good spot to kind of wrap it up. Cause we're, as we're kind of wrapping up here is, you know, um, training camp is, is, is right around the corner. NBA tip off is 56 or 57 days away now. So, um, we're, we're getting close. We're getting close to that final, you know, less than two months. Thank God. Please hurry. Um, Soon everybody will be reporting and they'll be in the best shape of their lives. And, they, and they've added so much to their game and yep, all that awesome stuff. Yep. So it'll be It'll be so fun to hear. Well, Dan, it's always great to talk to you. Um, I don't know about you, but the Eclipse really energized me, and I'm hoping it's going to energize the Portland Trailblazers this year as well. Yes, I'm going to go take a nap now. <laughs> okay, take us out of here, Dan. Tell people where to find you and where to find the podcast. All right, folks. Uh, just a slight little change for anybody who, who may have been paying attention. The Blazers Edge podcast is now going to be a part of the Almighty Baller Network. Um, you may have been familiar with the podcast that I was doing there for a while that has gone away and this is coming in its place. Uh, we will now be there every week and anytime we decide to drop a podcast. So make sure you check out almightyballer.com. We are part of the Almighty Baller Network. We will still be on iTunes. We will still be on Stitcher. We will still be everywhere else for all your podcasts needs but we'll be up there ready to go as well as on the site um as far as for me on twitter you can find me at d meringue tara go ahead and let them know where they can find you and i am at tcbbiggs we will see you all next time thanks for listening